Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening. I'm Bill Grant with the Environment and Natural Resources Forum here at the Commonwealth Club, and I want to welcome you to tonight's uh, event with Stuart Brand. This event is co-sponsored by Inforum, a division of the club for people in their 20s and 30s. Over the past four decades, invincible rabble-rouser Stuart Brand has spent time anticipating cultural revolutions and launching a medley of new ideas, movements, organizations, and communities. He is the founder and publisher of the Whole Earth Catalog, co-founder of The Well, and founder of the Long Now Foundation, among other ventures. In the process, he has turned conventional thinking upside down. Today, Brand spends considerable time talking about the city planet, a term used to describe the eventual urbanization of the world and what the implications will be for human uh, uh, innovation. Uh, Stuart? Thank you. How's our sound? Is that okay? Wave your hand if there's a problem. Um, I really am going to talk about cities, mostly cities going on now. But the good way to understand cities is to go back to the basics. We need the sound up quite a lot higher. just witnessed history. That is, in fact, the history of cities. Uh, cities are constantly turning themselves over and constantly uh, renewing themselves. Cities are the oldest things around. The way you find uh, an old city in the Mideast is you look for a flat-top mountain, and that mountain was not there before the city was. The mountain was made by the city. Uh, they call them tells in that part of the world. And if you look in one of the tells at Jericho, uh, you find basically the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world on the order of 20,000 years. Uh, anyway, inside the Tel at Jericho, uh, as we go back in as archaeologists, there is this amazing thing. Uh, from the very beginning of Jericho, there is a stub of a tower. That's, the stub is 30 feet high. It's 30 feet across. Nobody has the faintest idea of what they were doing. But this is a typical city activity. And uh, you could say that many begats later, this thing begat the Transamerica Pyramid, among other city buildings. Uh, it's the case that cities, uh, when they last well, last very well. Uh, Jerusalem has been an important city for uh, 
over 2,000 years, and uh, it's been conquered. This happens to be an illustration of about six of the burnings of the city. Uh, it's been destroyed 36 times. It's been run, been run by practically every religion in the world and uh, is an important city now as it was then. That keeps happening. Uh, this happens to be a, a case of a rapid physical turnover of Boston, where you see that uh, the circle on the left shows the Old South Church. Same circle on the right shows the Old South Church. That's the only building that lasted over that period of time. All the others are new buildings. Streets have stayed the same, but this is typical turnover in cities. They, they renew their fabric totally about every 50 years in Europe, probably faster than that here, and certainly faster than that in the developing world. So let's get to what's going on in the developing world. What you have now everywhere is a huge transition. Basically, the rural population is dropping and the urban population is skyrocketing. So uh, we're just now, this year, according to UN figures, getting to 50% urban in the world. Um, Just 200 years ago, it was 3% urban. 100 years ago, it was 14%. It's expected to go up to 61% by 2030, and nobody knows by the middle or end of the century, but chances are it'll level off at about 80%. That's typically what developed nations do. Because the pattern is the developed countries uh, are the ones that have gone urban first. As you can see, by 1950, they were already 50% urban. And the less developed countries are coming along pretty darn quickly. In fact, much more rapidly than the developed countries did. And so the urbanization that we're used to uh, was pretty dramatic anyway. That's way more dramatic now elsewhere in the world. Uh, here's the thing I just picked up from the Internet the other day, and it's showing uh, what happened over the last 50 years of urbanization. Each of these circles is a city of 5 million, and uh, they are increasing all over the world. You can see that South Asia and China is growing rapidly. Latin America uh, started early and got very big very fast. This is also something I found recently. Um, Cities are famously urbane, famously world cities, and this is a measure of that. You've got uh, the purple ones here are the cities with a million or more foreign-born in them, and the green dots are the cities with 500,000 or more foreign-born in them. When you go to a big city and you hear lots of languages and see lots of different kinds of people, That lets you know you're in a a big and important city. Big and important cities are pretty much uh, how we think about the history of any particular time. And the history that we're most used to is guided by the the dominant cities of 100 years ago. London, New York, Paris, Berlin, Chicago, Vienna, Tokyo, interestingly. But you look 50 years later, by the middle of the century, it was already starting to shift. And then uh, you'll notice, by the way, that all of the cities have grown doubled, basically, in that 50 years. The next 50 years, they tripled from what they were in 1950. So they were six times bigger than at the beginning of the century. And you'll notice there's a completely different makeup. Now, if you call out the cities that are from the developing world in red, uh, that's what you see. And if you expand out, say, another uh, to 2015, this is the expectation of what will be the dominant cities then, Tokyo with 36 million, Mumbai in India with 22 million, et cetera. 
And as far as who's in what used to be called the West and now the North, pretty much all you have left is New York. This pattern is actually a little bit familiar. If you go back a thousand years, these were the dominant cities a thousand years ago. Cordoba in Spain, Kaifeng in China, and so on down the line. Who was in the West then? You'd have to bend it, but you could say that maybe Cordoba and Constantinople. In other words, the rise of the West is over. This whole thing of Europe and North America dominating history with its cities has uh, basically passed, changed the world, and we're now into something much more medieval feeling. The next few decades, this is a map which is showing the <clears throat> circles in red, are uh, showing where the expected growth is. And as you can see, it's, it's in the south. This is a big event. Demographics is destiny, as we say in the futurist business. And right now, 1.3 million new people in cities every week. Some of them are being born there. Most of them are moving there. Added up at 70 million a year. It's not just this year. It's not just this decade. It's several decades in the past, and everybody expects it to be several decades in the future. This is a huge event going on around us. One of the things that's driving it and that, that it drives back is the whole question of globalization. Uh, basically, nations are softened and cities are strengthened by globalization. And even NGOs now go increasingly straight to the big cities where the needs are and where they can efficiently uh, purvey what they have to offer. The difference is that nations are defined very much by boundaries and cities are defined very much by their economic activity, which is like a node, it's like a center. And so the planet that I grew up thinking about was one that was pretty much defined by its national boundaries. Well, then we had the Apollo program, and we started to see the world this way, where boundaries dropped away. And then with military satellite photography, uh, you got what the city looks like on the dark side, and the, the planet looks like what it, should, it looks like a city. You see the cities glowing right back at the stars, and that's the shape of civilization now. Actually, you could do one more transition and say, how does it look from the perspective of the internet? This is one of many maps of the internet. This happens to be a, a peering map that shows uh, very strong connections between. Uh, mainframes in uh, connectivity and, and peering between the, the bottom right triangle areas between Europe and North America and uh, somewhat between North America and Asia. Not much connection between Asia and Europe yet, but it's building fast. And so for the time being, North America is the center of the Internet world, but that's probably temporary. Important thing to realize that I hadn't caught on until I started looking into this is that cities have always been population sinks. And um, there's a reason for that. Basically, it's uh, the more kids you have when you live in the country, the better. It's insurance. They can work. Um, there's not much else to do. And uh, that's where people have lots of children. Once they get in town, you get to the situation that any urban American has now, which is when you're thinking about having a child, it's a choice of what would you rather have, a child or a million dollars, and the time to enjoy it. 
because that's actually probably a low figure on between lost wages and the sheer cost. This is not college. This is just getting a kid up through high school. It's about a million dollars. The equivalents of that are the same, often lower figures elsewhere in the world, so people get to town. And the replacement birth rate is 2.1 children per woman. All the last few decades, rapidly now, of the birth rate as people move to the cities, the women move to the cities, get liberated, uh, decide they want to have fewer kids and educate them. Meanwhile, they've got jobs and they're running various organizations. Their birth rate goes right down to 2.1 replacement and then to the demographer's astonishment keeps right on dropping. And so in parts of the world now, like in the developed world, in Italy, Spain, Germany, um, certainly Russia, certainly Japan, Italy, I think the replacement, the uh, birth rate is now 1.3 children per woman. That's radical. But among other things, it means the problem that we used to care about, uh, rightly, of world population, that bomb is being diffused as we speak. And not for any of the reasons we expected. It's basically urbanization which is driving that. So we'll get to 8 or $9 billion, uh, in the next couple decades. And by then, it'll be slowing it's already slowing conspicuously, then it'll be leveling off. And already Russia and Japan are, are losing total population, and a lot of people will follow in that direction. So uh, there's a very good book called uh, The Empty Cradle by Philip Longman. And this is one of his slides that I borrowed. Uh, this is a UN projection, one of the moderate ones, that suggests if the world fertility rate stabilizes 1.85 children per woman, uh, by 2300, we'll be back down to the two-point-something billion we had in 1960. But the fertility rate in the developed world already is down to 1.56. So we may be looking at a population problem that is the opposite of the one that we've been experiencing for the last few decades. We may be looking at serious economic uh, dislocations caused by population plummeting in this century. Because the next two billion people that are coming along are almost all in cities, and those are the ones who are, are busy. They're not having a lot of kids. This also means that there's some pretty interesting demographic things going on with uh, the age pyramids, and so uh, this is the empty cradle. We're running out of bambinos in Italy and babies everywhere else, and uh, more and more old folks. So uh, Florida may well be the forerunner of... Uh, North America, and lots of other places increasingly looking like that. Even Mexico is aging faster than the U.S., and so you could see a reversal of, you know, that, that we may have to sell our fence to them uh, at some point because they'll be in greater need of uh, young employees from here than we are from there. So the next 30 years, what you're seeing is these megacities and hypercities in the South, uh, they are full of young people. That is where the last part of the population momentum, as it's called, is playing out. The last new two billion babies are growing up there. So new cities full of young people, and in Europe and North America and elsewhere in the North, old cities full of old people. In any case, they're moving, people are moving to the cities and away from the countryside, which means the countryside itself is emptying out and uh, will be more visited than lived in. I wanted 
give a brief, brief kind of overview on, on how I think civilization works. Um, my notion is that a good way to think about any robust dynamic system is to take it apart in terms of the pace layering of it. Some parts move very quickly, some parts move slowly, some parts move really slowly. And one way to think about a healthy civilization is to uh, move from the, the slowest parts, nature, climate change, uh, biodiversity change, things like that, up through culture, religion, language groups, which move by centuries, sometimes millennia, governance rather than government, uh, which changes pretty slowly up through infrastructure, five-year plans and 60-year buildings and so on, rapid commerce and even more rapid fashion and art. An example of that breaking is uh, here, if you look what happened in an earthquake in Turkey back in 1999, uh, they have perfectly good building codes in this part of Turkey, but the commercial interests were able to buy off the building inspectors and basically uh, put governance at the rate of commerce uh, and not be able to think far ahead, not be able to think infrastructurally. And so when an earthquake came along, those buildings were not ready for it, and they came down and killed a lot of people. Now, what's interesting in this image is what is the strongest-looking building in there? Uh, it's the mosque. Here's a organization is 1,200 years old, and apparently they know about earthquakes. And the building seems to know about these long-term natural events. I got this image from National Geographic, and you say, well, okay, that's, that's pretty cute. That you know, makes your point, but uh, you know, does that happen to anywhere else? Well, if you go to Sumatra uh, right after the earthquake and uh, tsunami there, uh, this image was one. You say, okay, fine, good one. Uh, this, Let's fly the helicopter around a little bit. Do you see anything else like that? There are some parts of our culture, in this case buildings, which actually are aware of natural system time frames and respond well to them and interact well with them. And that's probably the way to run a civilization. So a way to think about these kinds of diagrams is that the fast parts are doing the learning and proposing. They're absorbing the shocks. Commerce is always trying new stuff. Uh, most businesses go out of business. Nobody cares. Uh, the things that are remembering, the libraries and the, the codes and the regulations, uh, they're integrating all that stuff. They're making sense of the shocks so that you're ready for the next one. Their focus is on continuity, whereas this, the fast ones, fashion is constantly telling you what's out of fashion. You've got to get rid of it. And unfortunately, or, or not, I don't know, uh, keeps me in business, most of our newspapers and magazines and, and web stuff is focusing on the fast-moving stuff. You know, this week's news, today's news, this five minutes news. Political cycle is driven by that, which is maybe too bad, because the real juice is in the slow stuff. That's the power. That's the culture. That's the governance. That's the infrastructure. And we're trying to figure out how to get our political process back into engaging those where the power really is. Now, a few years ago, I did a book called How Buildings Learn, and I keep getting asked to do a, a talk on how cities learn. So I thought, okay, well, uh, maybe I'll... How can I think about that? Maybe I can use that diagram of civilization and, and figure out how to, how to change it so that it will work for cities. So I looked into what cities really are, and you know, there's a lot of books with titles like this. Basically, civitas, citizen, 
uh, civilization, cities, it's all the same word. And so when you look back at the history of cities, starting for us with Athens and the city-state and then on up to the city-state of Florence in the 14th century and Venice and uh, a contemporary city-state in Singapore, cities have often been more dominant than the nations they were in the thick of, and they are often the ones that drove history. And uh, we would say that was where civilization was happening. So I wound up saying, okay, uh, since cities and civilizations are close enough, I can use the same diagram to talk about how cities learn. Except that the thing that the whole idea of the hot New York minute, uh, cities move really, really quickly, and that that's part of their function, uh, my suggestion is that, that cities basically distort this diagram to emphasize the fast stuff. This is where fashion is going on. This is where commerce is jamming. And... Uh, and we keep nature at a certain distance. And uh, as a process, then, the, what the cities are doing is teaching the society around them. Okay, here's a classic case, San Francisco Bay Area. We always have sinister music with this kind of thing. There's cancer growing on the land, but what if you change the music? This is not a down story. bit of cable car sound there. It's an upstory. Rapid growth is what cities do. And, you know, for us at least, we think it's pretty much okay. And how can we say it's not okay somewhere else? When you're growing up in a small town, you know you'll grow down in a small town. There's only one good use for a small town. You hate it, and you know you'll have to leave. That's my friend Lou Reed talking about uh, where the people came from to uh, move into San Francisco and Chicago and Seattle and Los Angeles and Phoenix and all these other places have been growing like mad. Um, The American countryside is emptying out, and where they're going is an interesting um, concept referred to as megapolitan areas. We're here in NorCal. Uh, We've got three major ones on the West Coast, uh, Southland and Cascadia. And it turns out if you overlap the uh, interstates on these things, you get a sense of how these major conurbations came to pass. This is the urban landscape of North America. But North America is a tiny event. Uh, here's where the action is. All over the world, here in Togo, Africa, the uh, countryside is emptying out. The villages are emptying out. In South Africa, in Saudi, in Oman, in Syria, in Turkey... Central Russia, when the central economy uh, collapsed, a whole lot of subsidized cities out in the middle of the Soviet Union uh, basically emptied out right away. Same thing happened in East Germany. Spain has empty places. Newfoundland, uh, you can tell by the bright buildings, but there's nobody in them. Likewise in the Faroe Islands. Bolivia. China, 300 million people moved from the countryside to the cities in the last 40 or 50 years. They expect another 300 million people to move from the countryside to the cities. And so you're seeing this all over China. What's going on? What converted me on this was a statement I heard about eight years ago. In the village, all there is for a woman is to obey her husband and family elder, pound grain, and sing. If she moves to town, she can get a job, start a business, and get education for her children. Her independence goes up, and her traditional constraints go down. 
This was Kavita Ramdas, who works just south of here in the Global Fund for Women. Here's the unromantic truth of life in the country, especially in the developing world. It is rough, it is dangerous, it is unpaid, it is fragile, uh, it is brittle. And when people get a chance to move somewhere else, and they go and visit their uncle in town, and they see that things are exciting, you can actually get paid for your work there. Uh, you're a lot freer than you were in the village, you're a lot more private. Uh, it's actually safer. There's, doesn't, there's not bandits in the same sense. There's not um, vulnerability to uh, weather and all those other things. And you've got a chance to improve your life. So people move to the city. Uh, lucky ones go to Shanghai. Most folks go to places like this, squatter cities, or like this, Hoshinya in, uh, in Rio. Now, this happens to be a book I recommend to you called Shadow Cities, A Billion Squatters, A New Urban World by Rob North. And um, it's part of what put me onto the track of all of this. I'll just recommend a few other books. I mentioned Philip Longman's The Empty Cradle. Uh, there's a good one on Mumbai called Maximum City and a fantastic one on Mumbai, which is a novel on the lower right there, Shantaram, by Gregory David Roberts. Uh, the one on the lower left I just added, uh, cell phones are absolutely transforming the urban developing world. They are doing things with it far beyond Japanese schoolgirls. Uh, far beyond anybody else. They've turned their cell phones into ATM machines making cash. They are standing in job lines on their cell phones. They are absolutely, you talk about innovation, if you want to see what's going on, uh, go to the squatter cities. And then the, the one that all corporations read is uh, C.K. Prahalad's The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Okay, we'll take a quick slideshow of uh, some of these places where a billion people live. Uh, Turkey has them, Cairo. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's not like they stop being aesthetic when they get to these places. In fact, it probably increases. Uh, of course, there's satellite dishes everywhere. Uh, this is the famous, now famous, Kibera, a million strong uh, squatter city right outside Nairobi. Uh, lots of action there. This is a uh, typical squatter city favela in, uh, in, in Rio. All of those buildings are illegal. This is a whole uh, squatter high-rise city. And in fact, I've got a couple of citations on this. If you add up the aggregate of all of the squatter buildings going on, squatters are the dominant city builders in the world today, decade after decade. This is where the physical action is, as well as everything else. And what you see is uh, they gradually go from uh, waddle and daub to paper to tin to mortar, and then they keep on building mortar higher and higher. Uh, they have busy streets, they have markets, they have schools, they have everything going on in them. These are cities. Uh, they're often on foot cities, cell phone cities, uh, because they don't have their own infrastructure, they steal it. In uh, Latin America, they're called gatos. The guys go out and, and just basically uh, uh, grab electricity and water as it's going by, and string it up through these things, hook it into the various... Uh, buildings where they live, and that's the nature of the infrastructure. It's homebrew. Um, places like Caracas, Venezuela, this is a slide I borrowed from AES. Uh, there's four people die a month uh, from electrocution hooking these lamp cords together. And so corporations are in the process of figuring out how these people can go from being, they think they want to, that these are pirates who want to be customers, and they're right. So one of the transitions that's going on with government help, corporate help, and NGO help, 
is uh, going from stolen electricity and water to uh, uh, cheap electricity and water. The economics are very strange. Mumbai, absolutely smothered by slums, you think would be the uh, dead weight economically. But just in the formal economy, it's one-sixth of India's gross domestic product, never mind what's going on in the informal economy down there in the streets, which, as you see, look medieval, feel medieval, but not dark age at all. This is Renaissance stuff. Remember the, the German phrase that came out of the Renaissance was uh, Stadtluft macht frei. City air makes you free. And that's what people are doing when they move to these places. And they're having a renaissance. Now, I show places like Kibera, where it's a, you know, a huge slum right next to a city. But in fact, the slums are all meshed right in. And so the informal economy of the lower part of these pictures is smacked right up against the formal economy and is making it possible to a large extent. So uh, here's uh, Dhaka. The slum clusters are scattered all over. And they're completely blended into the, to the whole operation. And there's a lot of change going on there. And one of the things that goes on is you'll get places like this, and then something political happens, and they tear it all down. There's a lot of this going on in Zimbabwe. And sometimes it's understandable and justified, and they get them better places to live. But often it's just a, uh, a horrible, destructive thing to do. So what squatters care about more than anything else is security of tenure as the UN calls it, that they can stay, please. Location is huge. Uh, there's not much transportation, so they want to be able to walk to work. And if they can't walk to work in the formal economy, they'll create work in their own world. Water is a big event. Sanitation is a big event. If there's any serious pandemics, uh, people are so dense, six people to a room in some of these places, uh, you could have a real runaway situation. Electricity, they'll steal and protection from crime, often from people outside the, the slum who rip them off because they don't have police protection. Now, we often go to these places and think, well, gosh, what they really need is housing. And since so our idealistic architect comes in and gets some NGO money and works something out with the government and builds a wonderful cheap high-rise for the people there, and it instantly becomes the worst part of the slum because nobody owns it, nobody cares about it. It's not incrementally improving. It's just a, a dead loss. Uh, phone service, thanks to cell phones, they're now, you can get a cell phone, use cell phone for $10 in most of these places. It is so crucial that everybody gets one. And so more than half of humanity has cell phone connectivity now. Uh, unemployment, you look at some figures, oh, all those people, and they're so bad they're unemployed. Well, they're completely employed. It's just in the informal economy, which isn't counting. And so the children are working and the old folks are working. Uh, starvation, which is a great problem in the countryside, uh, the cities do not have that anymore. And thanks to NGOs, thanks to lots of things, again, in the countryside, you can't get medical care, but in town you can. Sometimes the government helps. And so you can take a place like Indoor, and they worked out a program of uh, getting help from the people who lived there to do some of the infrastructure construction themselves. They got sort of quasi-deeds from doing that and uh, turned what had been a slum part of the city into uh, a now considered a very proper part of the city. And the main thing that's going on in places like that is the education for the kids. This is the future. The education that's happening is often mom-and-pop kind of stuff, um, but it's education, and it's happening for the children of the billion in the squatter cities. 
Now you look at these places and look at that street in Mumbai. What's going on there? Well, basically everything's going on there. Uh, everything you would find on Market Street, only compressed and on foot, including, of course, an Internet cafe and all the rest of it. The informal economy has been very little studied yet. But what you've got is a lot of different ways. You go to these slums and you think, oh, gosh, these poor people, they don't have any money. There's quite a lot of money in the slums. It's coming from people renting stuff to each other, building stuff for each other, employing each other like mad, providing all sorts of services, and then the remittances coming in from illegal workers and sometimes legal workers overseas. One rough guess in developing countries is that 60% of the employment is in the informal economy. We don't have numbers on it. We're guessing. And so what that means is the economic theory has not caught up with the reality of the world just now. It's very much like dark energy in, in astrophysics, where, you know, there's this, okay, the universe is not only expanding, it's accelerating, we don't understand why, there's this, you know, we'll call it something constant or the dark energy, and we don't know what it is, but it's huge, and it's accelerating, it's expanding. That's the informal economy. So you see it going all over. This happens to be in the, the famous huge slum in Mumbai called Dharavi. And, uh, you know, you see everything from haircutting to uh, people uh, making mattresses out of uh, cloth scraps. On the lower right there, the uh, uh, huge laundry area where the laundry is done for the entire city. And uh, it's economically very, very busy, even in Kibera. Uh, people are working, people are selling stuff to each other and to the formal economy. It stinks. Now, you can see this and say, oh, gosh, that's pretty great. There's a lot happening there. If you go there, it's rough. It smells awful. But people are smiling. They're doing lots of stuff. They're, they're not a population crushed by poverty. They're a population busy getting out of poverty as fast as they can. It takes a while, but they're doing it. And you see things like this. They are taking phone, the possibilities of phones, and moving them in all directions. Uh, this is a picture from Jan Chipchase taken in Delhi, where uh, there's an entire street where, you know, if we break our cell phone, that's pretty much it. We throw it away. There, a broken cell phone. Uh, everybody here knows how to repair every kind of cell phone there is at the, you know, down at the chip level. And so that's why you can get cell phones for $10 in these places. And then people find various ways to share them, and they're moving the uh, uh, chips in and out and, and uh, turning them into money and so on. This happens to be one of Jan Chipchase's photographs. It has gotten to the point where people's street addresses is their cell phone number. They're way ahead of us. And these are folks who live in cyberspace physically. <laughs> so there's a lot of action there. And uh, especially look at the lady on the right. With The main event, I think, that's going on is when uh, people move to the city, the women get liberated. As Kavita Ramdas pointed out, this is a major event for them. And uh, so the women are running things. 
They are the ones who get the microloans. In uh, Kenya, uh, legally, only women can get uh, these kinds of loans because they're the reliable ones. They form these credit circles, and they're the ones who can, uh, will pay it back. In some countries, it's illegal for a woman to own property, but they are, in fact, the best uh, keepers of property. So a billion people, and they are in motion, and they're being joined. One to two billion more are expected in the squatter cities. This event is not even beginning to be over. These places are where so much action is because I think they are doing exactly what we did in San Francisco in the 1840s and 50s, which started as a shantytown. Uh, they are generating their own economy. They are organizing their own situation. They are building incrementally, which means with great adaptivity. Uh, they're providing support for, for each other in terms of not the tribe, but of uh, the nuclear family uh, that collects in town and by neighborhoods. And since governments are not stepping up, religious groups are. Something like 10% of humanity is Pentecostal Christian now. And they are taking care of business. In the Islamic countries, the Islamists, places like Morocco, and uh, Shivaji cult in places like Mumbai. Religious groups are taking care of business. This isn't necessary missionaries. These are, those many are. It's uh, typically local groups. So besides being population sinks, cities are wealth creators. They always have been. That's what they do. And as a result, all of this new city action, this is where billions of people right now are busy climbing out of, property, out of poverty, and not via property. It's via this other thing. And so there's a lot of transformation, and with all the horror and crime and every other thing that goes on with this process, I mean, it really is Dickensian. This is London in the you know, 1840s. It's tough. But people are rising up, and they are being inventive as hell. And one of the things we can do if we're interested in innovation is pay close attention. As an environmentalist, I'm interested in cities anyway as green events because they're so dense. But if you want density, go to Mumbai where you've got a million people in a square mile. Obviously using minimal amounts of material and energy. They're recycling everything, and they're coming up with new ideas. I'll give a local example of that. Uh, the whole notion of new urbanism rose out of my neighborhood, which is just across the bay in the South Salido houseboat area. Like all... Such places, we have our own music. Otis Redding wrote, sitting by the dock of the bay in, uh, in the houseboat community in Sausalito. Now, I live right there in a tugboat with my wife. And for a long time, a couple years ago, our neighbor on the South 40 dock was Peter Calthorpe. Peter had been in various neighborhoods in San Francisco trying to make them work as neighborhoods, failing and failing and failing. And he came, gave up and came and lived on the dock and realized that there actually was a community there, partly because everybody saw each other face-to-face -face walking up and down the dock. And so he developed the idea of walkable communities, and uh, rapid transit served walkable communities. And so one whole wing of new urbanism came out of Peter's experience with a local squatter city in the Bay Area. Uh, and so he's making places that have the equivalent of a dock in them where people live with relatively high density and mixed use. We have mixed use in Sausalito because uh, we didn't take coding seriously. 400 houseboats invaded 
in the 50s and 60s, and then only later got gradually legalized and gentrified the typical sequence that goes on with squatter cities. I think there's something missing from the studies that are being made of the so-called ecological footprint, and uh, it's this, that we've been looking at the ecological footprint of cities and worrying about how big it is and how to make it smaller and so on, and that's great, but I don't think people are, are necessarily looking at it in contrast to how people are sitting on the footprint they make when they're living in the countryside, driving around, using a lot of material. Uh, typically, I think it's not just suburbs that are relatively expensive, but a lot of the way out there in the countryside folks are, are uh, leaving a larger footprint than they need to, and that may be one of the reasons they're moving to the city, not out of uh, necessarily goodwill to the environment, but because they want to be in a more economically dense action, and part of that is a, is a kind of environmental efficiency. When the people move out of the countryside, the natural systems move back. The, in the developing world, where every place where the shrubs and trees are being cut for firewood, uh, people move away, those things come back. Places where they're killing wildlife as bushmeat, uh, the people move away, the wildlife comes back. And so I think that there's um, some uh, prospects here that we can see more about. So the, the sort of summation is that cities are transformative. They're transformative for the individual, especially for women. Uh, families uh, develop the uh, process of having shared income from a variety of people in the family at various times. They get the advantages of fewer children and more education. And in the society where this is happening, you get more wealth happening, you get participation in the globalization in the world city, uh, there is lower population pressure thanks to this and, and lower environmental impact. What drives all this? People are not moving to town because they're being asked to. In fact, they're usually being told not to in most of the developing world. Don't come here. We can't take care of you. Go back to wherever it was you were and don't bother us anymore. What's driving them into town is the chance uh, to get paid, to get a job, to get some opportunity, to get some education for the kids, to get out of the static situation they're in in the countryside. They see the actions in town and the bright lights, and they go to the bright lights and they're right to. So in terms of the green perspective on this, is there an environmental strategy? I think the first thing we need to do is get more sense of what's really going on, pay attention to it, collect the data, and then do a couple of things. One would be uh, to go out and increasingly preserve and prepare the natural systems in the now empty countryside because people will come back. They may only visit, but they'll start making impact again and what you want to start taking the advantage of this time to protect it. And this is also because of all of this huge transition in the cities, even in the developed world like here, this is the chance to use some of this wealth that's being generated to make the cities themselves really green and really humane. Um, and so you can start to see things like this. That happens to be in New Zealand. <laughs> I'm going to give the last word to my friend Brian Eno, uh, who has some uh, perspective on all this. You got some questions. Oh, Now's just the time to go to the mic. Day. 
Questions? Yes, hello, thank you. My name is Pamela Collette, and I work in Kibera in Kenya. And oh, great. I'm, yeah, and I'm working with something called Hot Sun Films. Um, now, this was really great, and thank you very much for all of this. But something that I'd like you to comment a little bit more is the question of the social, cultural, and political dynamism. Because what my work there has shown, we're working with cultural workers. It's called the Ghetto Wassani Company, um, Ghetto Artist Company. And we're working with all tribes and all religions together. And they're young people. Hmm. And Kenya has been ruled by tribalism and a lack of democracy since so-called independence. So um, I think the question of leadership, social, culture, political, is going to come from the urban slums. What do you think? Well... You should be telling me, because you've been there more recently than I. Um, I was in Kenya for a wonderful period, three months, about 20 years ago. And at that time, Kibera was pretty much describable as a uh, slum of despair, I think. But what I'm hearing since then, and, and you can update me on this, is I think people got the idea that you know, back then they hoped the government was going to do something for them, and Daniel Arap Moy was, uh, his government was basically parasitical, as near as I can tell, you know, just keep them alive enough to keep siphoning off the Jews. And I think people caught on to that eventually and realized the government was not going to help them, and so they were going to have to help themselves and, and to a large extent have uh, created their own economy, created their own culture of the kind you're working with. 
and took care of business on their own. And so that Kyberia, as I understand it, is, is a more of a slum of hope now. And um, now you can tell me I, I saw the movie The Constant Gardener, some of which was shot in Kyberia, and there was this sort of synchronized acting going on of a stage group. What, what was that about? Was that actually something that happening there? Right. Well, they have um, some of that is in Geo. Mm-hmm. What you saw was in Geo. Mm-hmm. Um, that was doesn't, an NGO I'm, not, doing I'm that? Try, not trying to, to mm-hmm. put that down. Okay. But what happened is there are some, oh, I can't even remember the name, but they're well known British um, artists, and um, they have started a foundation called Save Kenya. Mm. And what they do is then they get local talent, local people. Sometimes they write the story, sometimes they're written outside, and then they go around and do plays and stories about HIV, AIDS, and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And they get, they get small money for doing that. Mm-hmm. So that's quasi-indigenous, not completely indigenous. But the people that I'm working with, it's completely indigenous. Sounds great. Um, how leadership emerges in these self-organizing situations, I think, is, is going to be increasingly interesting. In some areas, it's organized crime. Uh, in Mumbai, I think organized crime is responsible for a lot of how the slums work. Mm-hmm. In the favelas in uh, Brazil, um, when it works, it's great. The uh, favelas are the safest part of town because the the cops are kind of corrupt in downtown Rio. But in the favelas, the the drug guys are uh, corrupt in their own way. But they like having sort of law and order in their streets. And some you know, some of the stories I got from Rob North and others is that there are some people who live. Work in, in the formal part of Rio, and, and, and you know they're part of the formal economy, but they keep a home in the favela because it's safer. Now, that has probably gone too far, and, and the prison-based uh, drug gangs are now running a large part of uh, having wars and running a large part of Brazil, and it's pretty chaotic right now. Uh, it's what the author William Languisha calls the feral zone. Well, in these feral zones, they are self-organizing, and um, to some extent. Benign leadership emerges, and sometimes uh, fairly malignant leadership emerges. It looks to me like, one, every one of these things is totally different. It's so immersed in the physical, climatological, social, cultural, religious, economic situation that they're all different, and the governmental relations to these places are all different. The UN is sort of collecting the countries that seem to be more enlightened and some that are less so. Zimbabwe is probably the worst. Turkey seems to be one of the best. The deal in Turkey is if you can create a new town overnight, you get to keep it. And so they've developed the ability, uh, and it, you know, if you're not quite complete, they bulldoze it. Uh, try again. Sorry. Nice try, fellas. And so people learned how to, and this takes leadership. Okay, everybody all at once now, you know, one, two, three, do it. And you have a new city by dawn, and the cops come around and say, okay, you got it this time, you get to keep it. And you'll see whole illegal towns uh, on the eastern side of the, of the Bosporus that are, you know, they've got a city hall that's seven stories high, totally illegal in formal terms, but it's obviously a, a functioning town with real leadership. So I'm uh, finagling the question by saying there's a lot of variety. I think the main thing is that, you know, if there's a certain amount of lateral awareness and best practices and all that cool stuff going on, I think we'll see so much innovation 
And because of cell phones and the other forms of globalization and Internet and $100 computers and whatnot, people are going to see what's working in other places, what's not working in other places. And without necessarily having a big you know, political movement with solidarity and all that cool stuff, uh, just start applying uh, what seems to work in various places uh, wherever they are. It'll be in flux. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking, this is the major, along with climate, this is the major event going on in our lifetimes is the urbanization of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as nobody could predict a bunch of the things that came to pass, we probably can't predict ahead of uh, where we are now. So this is improvisation on the largest human scale in history. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting time to be around. Thank you. Next question. Thank you for coming, Stuart. I'm a fan of uh, Friday night, long now. Events, so I hope uh, these people appreciate some of those are pretty creative and wonderful as well. So thank you. Thank you. As I listen to those wonderful speakers and I listen to you this evening, the one thing that keeps coming back to me, having been a longtime government manager, mm-hmm. is the issue of governance. Yep. And I see sort of uh, the evolution of, and you did a nice job of talking about the evolution in the Bay Area from the urbanization, the evolution of urbanization, but you probably could also do a chart that would say, has the governing of the system of the Bay Area kept up with the evolution of the urban environment? It's becoming obviously significantly more bureaucratic and regulatory. Um, You know it, and uh, the rules that drive the system today are as much into control. There's no better place specializing in that than our dear Marin County. But uh, you look at, as you stand back and you talk about the communities of billions of people, the models of governance becomes really, really interesting. Are there people studying governance? Are there people that can learn from governance? seems to me the World Banks and all those institutional organizations are really out of the loop as the world is evolving today. Is that, I mean, how does, how do these nations, uh, uh, if they want to uh, develop a governance model, that can take advantage of and encourage and grow the prosperity they all want. Um, A hopeful note for me was uh, there was a sequence of of UN reports on on slums and and squatter cities and the poor of the world. And in 2003, um, they did a report based not on just the conferences they were having and what the various governmental representatives were saying, sorry about that, I didn't break it, right? Um, They weren't taking just the government perspective. They decided they would actually do some case studies, and so they sent out 36 teams to various squatter cities and slums around the world to go and hang out in these places and get through the mistrust, because these folks have been lied to by everybody, and, you know, hi, I'm from the UN, I'm here to help. Yeah, right. Uh, But hi, I'm from the UN, I'm here to learn of you know, how do things actually work here. Well, you know, it all depends. You've got to talk to so-and-so. And they hung out for weeks and months and came up with um, economic analysis of how the slums actually worked. And that's the 2003 uh, report that I cited in here from the UN. And that was the one where you, the first time you started to see the acknowledgement of how much organization was already in place and how much resourcefulness and how much energy, in the sense that uh, you need to help provide security of tenure, and then if you ask for the help of the people who live in these places, 
uh, they'll meet you more than halfway because they've got all of the uh, ambition and all of the you know, focus in the world. As C.K. Prahalad keeps pointing out, people imagine that poor people are stupid. Uh, boy, is that a mistake. Uh, you can't afford to be stupid if you're poor. You can afford to be stupid if you're rich. Uh, but these are folks living on the edge, and so the ingenuity uh, and energy that is there is boundless. And it is uh, easily, not easily, but can be, it's already self-directed to agree. You take that and work with it as a, uh, a good listening government person. And as happened in, in uh, uh, the one place I, I mentioned in India, you can go a long way. So I think part of what's going on is... is um, respect, and looking for what are the things that you can sort of work with that are there and not try to come in as, okay, the government, we have the solution. Ivan Illich told me about what happened in Mexico City after the earthquake they had about 25 years ago, a major earthquake. And uh, Ivan was always living in the, in the poorest parts of town because that was his idea of where the action was. He was right. After the earthquake... Um, those were the parts of town that got themselves back on their feet first because they weren't counting on the fire guys coming. They weren't counting on the cops coming. They weren't counting on NGOs coming. They were, you know, they were used to taking care of things on their own. And so those parts, the poorest parts of Mexico City, came back to life right away and started repairing the damage and taking care of business, taking care of other people. Um, and then, unfortunately, uh, the officials showed up and told them to stop doing all of that and you know they would now run things, and so everything kind of came to a screeching halt. So, and we had the same thing here. I happened to be in the middle of the 1989 earthquake here in San Francisco, and it was the local volunteers who were doing all the rescuing. Um, the fire guys were fine, except they didn't have any water, and they had gas coming up under these buildings, so they were burning with people stuck in them. When the cops showed up, they tried to chase some of us volunteers away, and we ignored them. It is, you know, always going to be local folks who take care of business, and the government either works with that or against that. That's the choice, in my humble opinion. Yeah. yeah I just had a question. I want to see if you could expand on um, environmental strategies. So you talked about lack of awareness, um, lack of data um, in greening cities, and interested in hearing the perspective of in developed countries and also in the in developing countries. I have a feeling I don't know as much as I should know about what's going on environmentally with cities. Um, the North American environmental movement has been focusing on the sprawl in the suburbs and to some extent what they call exurbs, which is fine because I think greater density and greater mixed use and all the stuff that new urbanism is pushing, as we learned from the docks in Sausalito, uh, really do work. And Manhattan is probably the greenest population, the greenest city in America because it is so dense and people don't drive and all the rest of it. Um, but the comparative studies I've been looking, I haven't found them yet. Somebody might come up with them. Uh, haven't been made of the impact of, of people out in the boondocks. Um, I know that some people who are pretty respectably green uh, moved out to the countryside. There's a wonderful article in the uh, New Yorker about three years ago called Green Manhattan, where the guy said, you know, I went to Vermont to live the low-impact life, and lo and behold, my impact was a lot greater in Vermont than it was in Manhattan, so he moved back. Um, also, I'll bet he got bored in Vermont. 
that keeps happening. I mean, you know, why are we having this talk in San Francisco, a big city? Uh, we're not doing it in, uh, in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Uh, there's reasons for that. I'm not in Rockford, Illinois anymore. There's reasons for that. But the greening is um, because of climate change, I think. Uh, there's now a new level of urgency and knowledge um, about not only energy issues, but natural system issues, and water especially. Uh, everybody says that water is the next oil in terms of uh, geopolitics. Wars are being already fought about water, and a lot more to come. So uh, this will be a biological half-century. Biotech is taking off. But it'll also be a uh, environmental slash ecological slash uh, you know, natural systems political uh, half century because we're sorting out a lot of this stuff in context of climate change and this urbanization. Let's do one more question. Hey, uh, you noted that one of the distinguishing features of all these squatter cities is the absence of formal title to land. The absence is, of formal it, title, right? Yeah, and it seems like that makes them especially vulnerable to government as a kind of a shakedown operation or divide and conquer strategies or. You know, it adds a, a level of insecurity. Is it perpetuated? Because some of these squatter cities with, with unclear titles have been like this for decades and decades, not transitioning to gentrification. Is that in order to preserve? Title is a um, wonderfully uh, vexed issue. It was raised by Hernando de Soto, what, 15 years ago, uh, with uh, his book called The Other Path, uh, Sendero Otro. And he was the one who actually drew attention to the informal economy and, and how interesting and resourceful these squatter cities were. And his theory was that they could only get to a certain level of development because they were not able to cash in on their property. They're not able to get bank loans and so on. So they couldn't grow their businesses beyond half a dozen people and all the rest of it. So that's been a theory that's been around and has been uh, experimented with in a number of different ways, mostly in Latin America, but also elsewhere. What happens if you sort of in some kind of quid pro quo uh, give title in exchange for helping build infrastructure, something like that, like in this place in Indore in, in India. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes what you get is instant absentee landlords. <laughs> uh, great, I can get some money for this property I paid nothing for. I am going to charge a humongous rent and I'm going to go live in Paris off the rent. And absentee landlords is how to destroy a community because they're not actually there. Um, so sometimes it doesn't work. What's interesting about, it's not formal title, but it's informal title. In any particular neighborhood, everybody knows who, quotes, owns any particular place, and they can charge rent for it. And uh, there may be some neighborhood fussing over you know, walls and you know, where your place ends and my begins and all that kind of stuff. But it has worked out in this constant negotiation because the, the community is so dense and the gossip is so dense. I mean, you know, we're used to having uh, dramatic things happen in our life maybe twice a year. That's about all we can handle. Well, these folks are having dramatic things happen six times a day. And that's one of the reasons they're you know, not necessarily going back to the villages because it's pretty interesting. Uh, but one of the byproducts of all that interaction is that you can actually have an informal economy run on basically local, uh, locally densely maintained understanding of whose place is whose. 
eventually that gets legalized. It takes decades. And, and that's, I'm not sure how it happened here in San Francisco. Uh, you know, this is my shack. Uh, you know, mining law was developed here by miners, and the whole idea of the claim <laughs> had a lot of precedence. So in a sense, it's, it, it, you know, there's claims and claim jumpers out there in the squatter cities, and that's how it's proceeding at this point. It will get legalized in various stages, like in Turkey. Uh, I think we should call it an evening. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Stuart, for this insightful and uh, thought-provoking presentation. Now this meeting, the Commonwealth Club's Inform and the Environment and Natural Resources Forum is adjourned.